0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke. He was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Lord, as we gather tonight on this second night of our class, we come in true humility to Sit at your feet, Lord, as students, as disciples, who desire to love you better, to learn from you. Tonight, as you teach us the ways in which we can better become your disciples, the ways in which we can better fight against the attacks of the enemy, Lord, open our hearts and minds to you, so that we can be properly disposed to have those tools to fight against evil, to flee from sin, and to always be in your saving grace. Lord, we pray all this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. All right. So as a way to build for those, thank you, from last night, if you might have missed it, these talks are being posted on our um, podcast, so if you missed it last night, you can go back and listen to it again, or if you enjoyed it and you want to refresh your mind, you can go and listen to it. Uh, Tonight, though, we're going to talk about the three temptations. But before we get into that, I want to just lay the foundation again what we talked about last night. The Lord, uh, through the book that we're using, Dr. Brent Petra is highlighting a few important things. And the first thing he says that if we want to be a saint, if we want to be holy, if we want to dive into the spiritual life, then the first thing, the first step that we have to do is what? repent we have to repent we have to turn away from our sin remember we learned what the hebrew word for repent really means it's much richer than that english word that just means to have regret or remorse but rather it means to turn away from sin so to literally stop in your tracks turn direction and the direction that we're going toward is god to turn away from sin And turn back to God that's what repentance is the first step and we repent by also going to the sacrament of confession where we have true contrition for our sins we have sorrow for the sins that we've committed and we also have conviction resolution not to commit those sins again we looked at the Ten Commandments as them being the gateway into spiritual life, right? The Lord says that if you want to enter into eternal life, then the minimum, the starting point, is to keep the Ten Commandments. But then he gives that invitation to the rich young man to be perfect. It's an invitation that he walks away from. He says, if you want to be perfect, then go and sell what you have, give to the poor. He gives them on that same uh, instructions on the mountain. The mount- uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he gives them the Beatitudes, right? Blessed or, and we know that a better word for blessed, better translated is that Greek word, which means happy. Happy or those. Because you recognize that our true happiness is not in this life, but in the life to come. There are goods in this world, and we're going to talk about those goods tonight. There are things in this world that the Lord wants us to have that are good in and of themselves. However... The greatest good is heaven. The greatest good is in heaven because all the goods that the Lord gives us in this life, whether it's good health, good finances, good relationships, all that, we know that eventually it's going to be taken away from us. The Lord is going to come knocking at our door and he's going to ask us for that. We're going to have to let go, right? And, and at the moment of death is when we, we often let go of a lot of that as throughout our life he strips us from that he he teaches us to let go of that he gives us the grace to let go so that we can have the capacity to receive what he really wants to give us which is which is heaven right so if we understand that that we're not meant for this world that we're meant for a greater world heaven then death for us shouldn't be something that we're afraid of but rather something that we should truly long for. We, we hear that in the lives of the saints, how they often were so excited for death. Why? Because they were preparing to be reunited with the one in whom they love, he who loves us. It's returning back home. There's a country song about that, right? Uh, I can't remember exactly the words, but I think it's Carrie Underwood who says that, um, that this is our temporary home, right? So our real home is in heaven. So. I don't know about you, but I want to get to heaven. I want to be there with the Lord. And so in order to do that, we have to live right. We have to stay on the path that the Lord has marked not to get off. And that thing, we call it the spiritual life. So last class, we looked at how repentance is the foundation for the spiritual life and how the Ten Commandments are the doorway for walking in the path of holiness, staying on track to get to heaven. However, the problem arises that once we have repented, we've turned away from our sins and we've returned to the right path to God, temptation of sin still remains in our life, right? I often tell people in the sacrament of confession, if you've confessed all your sins and you're good to go, which we should bring all of our sins to the sacrament of confession, once we've done that, all the sins that we've confessed, the Lord Jesus Christ washes them away in his precious blood, God the Father sees them The no more. We essentially get a new slate. We get to start off over, right? And we hear those beautiful words from our Lord every time he heals someone, where he pairs it with a physical healing so that they can see what he's really doing internally, which is the spiritual healing. And he says, go and sin no more. And so we walk out of the confessional excited because we're free from sin. We're gonna go and sin no more, and then what happens? I get in my car, I leave the parking lot, I go to highway one, somebody cuts me off, and right? Well, add that to the examination of conscience that we talked about last night. Wasn't charitable to my neighbor there, right? There's a reason, though, why sin remains, right? Through Adam and Eve, when they fell, and through um, the birth of humanity, there was something that we inherited called concupiscence from our first parents. It's the inclination to sin, right? And let's face it, why do we sin? Why do we sin? I'm going to tell you, and you're going to be like, yep, you're right, but you're, not, you're probably not thinking about it right now. Why do we sin? Because we love it. We love our sin. Think of the things we do. We love it. It's fun. It's easy, right? I had a priest in confession once t- tell me, and it's one of the most honest things I've ever heard in my life. God sometimes is not as exciting or fun or enjoyable as the things that we like to do that take us away from Him. And that's true. It's true. To, to be still and to go to prayer, where sometimes we hear Him and sometimes we don't, especially in the moments when we don't hear Him, not as enjoyable as me going, sit down and watch TV or do something else, Right? But as we grow deeper in our relationship with the Lord, as that relationship is tested, as we come to truly love him and to know him and to know what he likes and what he doesn't like, then we learn to sit in that awkwardness, that tension, that boredom, right? Instead of wanting to go out and do all the other things that we could be doing, we sin because we like it. We eventually have to get to the point in our life, though, where we hate our sins more. And we don't get to that point until we can finally see and know what the effects of sin does to us. And we touched that a little bit. We touched on that a little bit last night with how sin wounds our relationship with the Lord, how sin kills our relationship with the Lord. So in this chapter, though, We're going to look at those things that entice us to want to sin and where that came from. The questions we're going to ask, is, our answer is, why is it that temptation of sin remains after we have undergone conversion, right? Why is it so easy to sin even after choosing to turn away from it? We've undergone conversion. We've committed to the Lord, right? I remember when I was ordained a priest, the very next day all of the same temptations were waiting for me and i was like wait but i'm a priest these things are supposed to go away right no they're always going to be with us now before we jump into the chapter though i do want to make a distinction as my professor in college said i'm going to keep on saying this there's nothing more catholic than to make distinctions. so let's define what triple concupiscence is that means that this ordered human desire or pleasure possessions and pride so it's disordered we all have an order toward pleasure possessions and pride but the triple concupiscence is the disordered now we can think of disordered as it being a negative word but it really just means not being properly ordered to the good right so god wants us to have some of these things but he wants, him, he wants us to have it orderly. And we're going to look at that. So, the triple concupiscence is the disordered desire for these things that are not good for us. So, let's go back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, right? The three reasons for the fall of Adam and Eve. I often get the question a lot from especially little kids um, in school Father, why did Adam and Eve? sin. Why did they sin? If they wouldn't have sinned, then we wouldn't have to deal with the problem of sin, right? So it's a pretty good question. So why did they sin? Let's look first at the dilemma of trust. Remember when God creates Adam and Eve, he puts them in the garden. He gives everything that they need. He tells them, all of this is yours. You can have everything you want except for one thing what's the one thing that god says you can't have for? the tree right god explicitly commands adam and eve when i say adam i mean both of them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and he says under penalty of death or when you will eat of this fruit you will die now What death is the Lord talking about here? Is he talking about a physical death? Or is he talking about something else? The spiritual death. Because it's a disobedience. It's doing what the Lord don't doesn't want us to do. Being disobedient to the Lord, it's sinful and sin causes again spiritual death. We talked about that last night. The Lord God gave the man this order, Genesis chapter 2 says, You are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From that tree you shall not eat. When you eat of it, you shall die. Adam goes away to probably do some work in the garden, and Eve is left. Eve encounters the serpent because right from the beginning, The devil wants to make a mess of things, right? And so he takes the form of the serpent, the Satan, which means adversary. We get the name Satan from. And he tries to trick Eve. Eve listens to the words of the serpent who assured her that she and her husband will not die, but will be like God. And the Hebrew word Elohim literally translates to mean like little gods, demigods. That's why the the G's not capitalized. And so in Genesis we read, now the snake was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He asked the woman. And listen to the question that the serpent asks Eve. Because remember he's cunning. He's going to add some things in there that was not there originally. In God's instruction remember God says you can have any fruit in the garden except this one don't eat of this one or you will die now the snake was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God made he asked the woman did God really say you shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden he's already twisted the language of God he's already saying wait God doesn't want you to eat None of these at all? And that's not what God said. God said you can have all of it except for one. But he's already planning distrust between Adam and Eve and God. The woman answered the snake. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said you shall not eat or even touch it. Or else you will die. Did God say that you can't touch it? No, you just can't eat it. She's adding something else too. But the snake said to the woman, and this is where he really drives the wedge between Adam and Eve and God. And this is why it's always important that we have to go before God in prayer to discern what's real. And what's not because the devil is constantly and will constantly try to drive that wedge between our relationship and make us distrust the Lord but the snake said to the woman you certainly will not die God knows well that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like gods who know good and evil you won't die In fact, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good, and you're going to know evil. The problem, though, is that in introducing this distrust, the devil is inviting Adam and Eve to walk away from God, to take upon themselves what they think is best for he or she. Every sin we commit in our life, at the bottom of it, if you think about it, we know it's wrong. That's why it's sin, right? Remember, we have to know that it's wrong in order for it it to be a sin. But yet we do it anyway. Why? Because ultimately we're saying, I know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. I know what I need. I know what's going to bring me happiness more than God. In that moment, Adam and Eve is saying essentially, I don't trust God to provide for me. I don't trust God to know what I need. I know better what I need than God. And we do that often in life. But here's something that's overlooked. Because it's not just the distrust that the serpent plants in front of the relationship of Adam and Eve and God that drives a wedge, but there's something else there that's driving Adam and Eve to want to eat of the fruit. And that's that triple motivation for the first sin committed, that triple concupiscence of pleasure, passion, PRIDE OF LIFE, THE PLEASURE, THE FOOD, IN THAT, AND I'LL READ IT TO YOU, THIS IS ON PAGE 62, WHEN THE WOMAN SAW THAT THE TREE WAS GOOD FOR FOOD AND THAT IT WAS A DELIGHT TO THE EYES and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. She saw that it was good for food, pleasure. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, longing for it as once she saw it. Possession. She had to have it. And the desire to be wise like God through disobedience where the pride comes in. The devil knew exactly what he was doing when he was tempting Eve and ultimately Adam by using all three of those. Because in and of themselves, those desires, they're good. The desire for food is good. We saw that God gives them every plant, every tree with its fruit to eat. Food is good, God wants us to eat. We see that the desire to possess created things is also good. God gives Adam and Eve dominion over everything that is good. They're able to name all the animals. They essentially possess everything that God puts on this earth as for us. That's good. And the desire to be like God is also good. In fact, that's what we're aiming for on this side of heaven. In theology, we call that divinization, to become like God. God makes man and woman in his own image and likeness. The way in which we're holy, the way in which we're perfect, is the way in which we share in that that Godhead, right? divinization. So all of this in itself is good. The problem, however, is that Adam and Eve try to acquire these three goods, pleasure, food, possession, desiring it, pride, to be like God. They acquire it by abusing their freedom and disobeying God. Instead of God giving it to them, they themselves reach for it apart from God. They want to be like God, but apart from his will. And this has been the struggle for humanity ever since our fall, that we have wanted things that are good, but to different degrees and for different reasons, which make them disordered. And our Lord knows that. It's why in the incarnation, as Christ is born, as Christ takes on humanity, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas says that the Lord could have became anything for us and he could have saved us anyhow. God could have easily from heaven snapped his finger and saved humanity. But he chose to become like us, become a human, to take on our humanity, that he can undergo all of the temptations that we undergo, and not only to undergo it, but to overcome those. And he does. On uh, on Ash Wednesday, we read in the homily every year, uh, the Gospel every year, is the account where our Lord, I'm sorry, that's the first week of Lent. The first week of Lent, every year, the Gospel is our Lord going out into the desert, Right, the Spirit moves him when he starts his public ministry. The Spirit moves him to go out into the desert. He's fasting for forty days and forty nights, and after that, after he's prayed up, after he's fasted, prayer and fasting, the devil comes at him, and the devil is, the devil's not original. He uses the same tricks over and over and over again. He just dresses them up a little different. The same thing he used for Adam and Eve in the garden with the temptation to want to be prideful, to possess, to have the pleasure that was all disordered. He does the same thing for our Lord. The devil tempts Jesus with the pleasure of eating. And imagine that, he's hungry. He's fasted for 40 days. His body is literally at this point, science tells us, it's eating itself alive. He's gone through the fat. He's, the, the muscle's deteriorating. That's eating. He's starving. He's hungry. And the devil puts before him food to eat. He gives him the temptation of wanting to possess glory of wealth and power, and the temptation of pride, of exalting himself by performing a miracle where everyone could see. And we see that in the Gospel. I'll read it for us. This is on page 63. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Wouldn't that be nice? for him to eat after 40 days not eating. And Jesus said to him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, It shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Strike one, strike two for the devil. Let's see if the third one. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest part, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, He will give his angels charge of you, to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone the devil too knows scripture he's quoting scripture to the lord but the lord doesn't fall for jesus says it is said you shall not tempt the lord your god and when the devil had ended every temptation wait there was only three how is that every temptation Because every temptation falls under one of those three categories. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Adam and Eve saw the apple, good for food. Jesus saw the bread, good for food, but he rejects it. He refuses to turn stone into bread. He doesn't give in to the disordered pleasure, which we call lust of the flesh, that which our flesh lusts out for, food. Adam and Eve saw that the apple was a delight to their eyes. Jesus too saw all the kingdoms of the earth, all the power and wealth. That too is desirable. But he doesn't give in to desire, to disordered desire to possess that. In fact, he does the complete opposite. Our Lord doesn't come to earth to possess anything. Rather, to give everything away. Throughout his entire life, and we see that in the best way on the cross, right? We call that the kenosis, where he completely empties himself. He empties himself of everything as he comes down from heaven to become one like us. He empties himself as he gets down on his feet and washes the disciples. Gets down on his knees and washes the disciples' feet. We're going to hear that in Holy Thursday. The mandatum. The great command. But more perfectly, on the cross, when he holds nothing back, he gives everything. He lets go of everything. He possesses nothing. Not even his own will. Only the will of God of the Father who sent him. He overcomes possession. He overcomes lust of the eyes. Adam and Eve, while they give in to eating the fruit because they desire to be like God, to know the difference of good and evil apart from God, not with God's help on their own, Jesus himself refuses to perform that to show off. He knows who he is. He is God. He's the Son of God. He doesn't give in to pride, the pride of life. In the Christian tradition, we have always seen Jesus as the new Adam. Where Adam fails, Jesus gets it right. Jesus conquers. Jesus conquers sin by conquering the three temptations of Adam. Our Lord's not just the Messiah. He's truly the new Adam and our Lady, the new Eve. His mission's not just to save humanity from their sin. Jesus comes, He dies, He saves us from our sin, yes, but He doesn't leave us there. He wants to give something more than just salvation from sin. He wants to give us the tools to be able to say no to sin. He gives us the power to conquer the very temptations that plunged humanity into sin. St. Paul states that it's not just the death of Jesus on the cross that saves humanity, but also his obedience, which undergoes the disobedience of Adam. Adam. And St. Paul writes in his letters to the Romans, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, but by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. What Adam did, Jesus undoes. And the Apostle John, while we call it the triple concupiscence, St. John in his letter, his first letter, writes that it's the triple lust. He calls it the triple lust. And In our English word, the word lust, we think when we hear it means only a disordered desire for sexual pleasures, but the Greek is a lot more rich than that. It's not just an attraction, a desire to sexual pleasures, but it really is a craving. We can crave after sex, yes, but we can also crave after pride and to possess things. And so he describes human sin as a triple lust. I'll read you that. This is on page 66. All that is in the world, though every single temptation, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, the triple root of all human sinfulness. Christian spiritual writers repeatedly emphasize that these three temptations are at the root of all sin and the evil that results from it. St. Augustine of Hippo has a beautiful quote on page 67. He says, These are the three And apart from either the desire of the flesh or the desire of the eyes or the ambition of the world, you will find nothing to tempt human selfishness. Nothing else but those three that tempt our human nature. Not just the human nature, but the human selfishness to want to possess, to gain, to hoard. St. John of the Cross, same Page, has a beautiful quote about what they sin, the triple root, concupiscence of the flesh, concupiscence of life, give rise to all the other appetites. So over and over and over again, we keep hearing that these three encompass all of the sins, all the temptations. Every conceivable sin that is part of this fallen world flows in some way from these three temptations. And page 67 through 68 lists a bunch of these, and we can think of many, many others. If we think about our life and the sins that we're most prone to fall to, every single one of those sins, the list that we come up with, can be put under one of these categories. Now, all of that is have been daunting, right? Talking about sin, but one of my professors in school says, "Father, if you bring him to heav- if you bring him to hell, make sure you bring him to heaven." Meaning, if we're going to talk about sin and hell, we got to talk about heaven, grace, and there's good news there, right? Yeah, all of us struggle with these three temptations at some degree: pride, possession, pleasure. But there's good news. The good news is that our Lord Jesus Christ himself came to this earth, he overcame these temptations, not only overcame them, but he gave us the tools to do likewise, right? On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives his disciples three spiritual exercises that are remedies for the triple lust that dwells in every single heart, whether it be pride, possession, or pleasure. And it's important to remember that Jesus did not overcome temptation so that his followers don't have to. That's important. Because a lot of people have this misunderstanding that because our Lord did all the work, I don't got to do nothing. And we hear that. We hear that in other religions, right? Once saved, always saved. Jesus did it. I don't have to do it. No. No. No, Jesus did not overcome temptation so that his followers don't have to do it, overcome it. In fact, it's quite opposite. He overcomes temptation so that we can overcome it too. So we have the grace to be able to do it and the tools. It's why the Catholic Church every single year celebrates the season of Lent. And the things we do during Lent, we should be doing throughout the whole year. But during this particular period in the liturgical year, she calls us intentionally to enter into these 40 days to practice three things, prayer, fasting, almsgiving. Those three things, the three pillars of our spiritual life, she calls us every year to be intentional to practice during the season of Lent. Why? Because every single thing that we struggle with in this life that keeps us away from Jesus, that hurts our relationship with the Lord, can be overcome by those three. We should be doing it throughout the whole year, but in a particular way, the season of Lent focuses for us those things that we really need to be working at to make it more intense. And this is scriptural. The Lord did it himself, and the Lord calls us into that desert to spend that time with him to do what he has done likewise. And we're going to look at those now. Those three pillars that help us in overcoming lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. So the first one, fasting. What's the reason for fasting? If food is necessary for human life, if it's good, why does Jesus expect his followers to sometimes fast and to sometimes secretly fast to abstain from eating? Again, let's make some distinctions. Lust of the flesh is the disordered desire for physical pleasure. Secret fasting, which is privately abstaining from food, in order to draw closer to the Father. And we're going to dive into that. So we're going back to the garden. Is this, if we're going to look at Jewish, the Jewish tradition, then the earliest we can look at is the book of Genesis in the Torah, the fall of Adam and Eve. So fasting in the fall of Adam and Eve. God commands Adam and Eve two things in the garden. The first thing he says is, be fruitful okay. Genesis 1. Verse 28. The second thing he says is abstain fast from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, verse 16 through 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. So God commands him two things. Be fruitful, multiply, multiply. And the very next thing he says, abstain. Do not partake of the tree of good and evil. And again, we we spoke about this. The dilemma, though, is that the tree is good for food. There's a natural desire for, for food to eat. Adam and Eve give in to their desire, and they eat of it, thus committing the very first sin by failing to control their desire to eat. The consequence for their sin is that they are banished from the garden and all human beings after them are born into this world with a disordered craving for the pleasure of food, lust of the flesh. So I can blame my great desire and love for Sonic on Adam and Eve. Are there biblical practices of fasting? There is. And the practice of that is to reverse the effects of the desires of the body to obey the will of the soul. We hear that in Scripture. Our soul is we willing, but our body is what? Weak. Because as humans, we're a composite. We're two things, right? We're body and spirit. At the moment of our conception. When man and woman come together in the marital embrace, and life begins with that embryo, God infuses into that human a soul. Man and woman create the body, God creates the soul. The three of them together are co-creators. Life begins when the body and soul come into existence at the same time, which happens at the moment of conception. That's why all life is sacred. It's why abortion is, is murder because it's life there's life there and it's not until death that the human person experiences for the first time in its life the separation of that body and soul That when we die the body stays here and the soul goes to the Lord until we await the resurrection the Lord will take the soul and body and bring it together again in that resurrected glorified state which he himself is already in but we're made up of a body and a soul and the discomfort the tension there as scripture says is that my soul wants to do one thing and my body wants to do something else i want to stay away from sonic right but my body doesn't i want that number seven chili cheese coney with mustard with mozzarella sticks and a fountain coke I want it. That's what my body's craving. For those of you who may be listening, my parishes know that I love Sonic, so that's why they're laughing. So, by fasting, we are reversing the effects of the fall because we do so by training the desires of the body to go along with the desires of the soul so that they're no longer opposed but now they're working together. And that takes time. That's not something that just happens. That's a discipline, and it's a practice. It's why the more we practice fasting, the more we pra- practice abstaining, then the easier it becomes. Our body gets used to it, and it's actually very beneficial for us. It's why, this is some Yap. but say Maximilian Kobe when he was arrested and brought to the concentration camp, and um, we know the story of how that happened he was in a group there was a man who escaped the nazis wanted to make an example they lined up 10 men one of the men was a father and husband they were going to execute him saint maximilian kobe being a priest offered his life to take the place of that father so that the father could live to be with his of uh, his family and in that time they starved them they were starving them they didn't feed him for days and slowly, over time, these people started dying. St. Maximilian Kolbe was the last one to die. Because while they were trying to starve him, fasting and abstaining was part of his regular practice as a priest, as a Christian. And so his body was used to it. It wasn't until days and days later that he actually was doing so well that in order to kill them, they legally injected him to kill him because the starving him to death was not working because his body had so become accustomed to it. His soul and body were were in union with each other. Not only was his body willing to undergo that and could undergo it because of the practice, but his soul obviously was there too, offering himself uh, to the Lord. Controlling the cravings for good things like food gives a person a greater ability to control cravings for evil things if we can control the things that are good for us chocolate's good for us right food's good for us chocolate is good for you especially after a nap if we can do that then all the other things that are not good for us become easier become easier it's not that the lord doesn't want us to have the good It's that it's easier to give up the good than it is to give up the evil. And so if we can temper ourselves with that, then we can be more successful. When people come to confession and they ask for help, if there's a particular thing that they're struggling with, I often give them this practice. Instead of just working on that right away, what's something else that you like or enjoy that's a lot less Habitual. Remember we talked about that last night, how sometimes, and it doesn't again, it doesn't have to be substance abuse. There are many things that we can fall into the habit of it being habitual, right? If there's something else that you find yourself just falling into, then what's something else that's lesser that you have a better grasp on? Start with that thing. Because when you work on that and you get better at that thing, then you build your willpower up. discipline in order to attack the other thing because it doesn't matter if it's food it doesn't matter if it's sexual pleasure it doesn't matter all of the appetites the desire for that they're all connected if you can't attack that one thing right away start chiseling away at it by attacking the other things in our life that we know we can give up right that's easier Preparation for entering God's presence. This is beautiful, and this is going to make a lot of sense to us as Catholics why we fast before Mass. And yes, that's still a practice. The church still asks us to fast an hour before we receive communion, an hour before Mass. And this is scriptural, too. It's not something that the church just made up. It's scriptural. Fasting is done in order to prepare... To enter into the presence of God. In the Jewish tradition, the high priests were married, and so they had all the rights that a married couple has, fill in the blank. But when they were called to enter into the presence of God, they had to fast from the marital embrace. They fasted in order to enter before God's presence. Zechariah would have abstained from having any relationships with Elizabeth when it was his turn to go into the Holy of Holies. And it's not just fasting from that, too, but also food as well. We see that in the book of Exodus on page 72. The Lord God... I'm sorry, Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Even as Moses goes into the presence of God on Mount Sinai, he fasts. He fasts. We see that also in the book of Kings with Elijah on page 73. There Elijah came to a cave. He lodged there. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and the lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake but the lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake a fire but the lord was not in the fire and after a fire a still small voice he fasts when he goes to mount orab to encounter the lord because in the fasting When we deny ourselves the things of this world, the things that we want, the things that are closest to us, it better prepares ourselves for the things that we can't see. So as Catholics, when we fast from that food before Mass, when we enter into his temple, our prayer is a little more intense. But not only is our prayer intense, the desire for the Eucharist, that food that God gives us from heaven is increased too. There's beauty in fasting. And we know this from our own Lenten observances, right? We give up things that we really like, things that are good. And at the end of that 40 days and 40 nights, when we can finally partake of it, the first time we take a bite or sip or whatever it is, if it's an action, just to watch TV or... To finally take a nap if that's something you give up, not to take naps in Lint. Isn't it so much better? You look at it completely different because you've been away from it for a while. Your desire, what happens in our desire, we preach this often, Father and I, that in the desire, in the waiting for that thing, in the waiting for that thing, our desire grows. The longer we wait for something, the greater desire grows. Right? That's why the courtship of man and woman before marriage is so beautiful in that they're waiting. They're waiting for that special day, that, that, that night of their marriage, right? And in the waiting, the desire for that other person grows. And as the desire grows, the capacity to receive all that is from that other person or that thing also expands. And so when we finally partake of that, we have now the ability to truly enjoy and love what it is that god or the other person gives to us right that's one of the great uh misfortunes of many of the relationships today is that people often run into the relationships and before there's any commitment before there's marriage before there's waiting there's premarital sex there's no waiting there's no desire there's no expanding the heart and the capacity for that to receive what God really wants to give them. And so the fruit of that love is less, less passionate, less love, less meaningful. But those who wait, those whose desire grows, then it's something beautiful, something beautiful. And the same with the Lord. When we go before him, when we practice fasting, it helps us to better enter into his presence. Fasting was also a sign of interior repentance in the Old Testament. It was an outward sign of inward repentance. We see that from the prophet Joel. All are called to fast as a way of turning away from sin and returning to God. There's repentance. And with all their hearts. Fasting was often signified by outward actions such as wearing sackcloth and ashes we see that in the book in esther right the queen esther queen esther is told that her people are going to be put to death she's married to the king they're going to die and so what happens he removes her royal garments her jewelry she puts on sackcloth and ashes he smears her face right he begins to fast She begins to pray. She does penance. Because she's willing to do all of this, this outward sign of the interior thing that she's going through, because she wants her people to be spared. And she goes before the king. She what happens though in that is that it prepares her to have the courage to go before the king because people are telling her, If you go before the king, he's gonna kill you. He's gonna put you to death. And that preparation prepares her to have the courage to say, you know what, if it happens, it happens. I'm doing this for my people. And she goes before them, and the king ends up retracting that and protecting her people because of that sign. And we see that throughout Scripture as well with Jonah and elsewhere, where the city of Nineveh and everyone else, when God threatens to destroy, they put on sackcloth and ashes they fast, they mourn, and the Lord has mercy on them. Every single Jew, right, we read in the book of Leviticus, on the day of atonement would afflict themselves, which the word affliction is a Hebrew expression. doesn't mean that they actually, like, whipped themselves. Affliction just means that they abstained from food and drink. That was every single year on the day of atonement. So we do that as well. What days do we afflict ourselves as a community? Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. And I'll say this for Father J.D. because he'll be excited that I said this. That's why we don't have crawfish boils on Good Friday. So there you go, Father. But Jesus is getting at something, too. He pushes the idea of secret fasting. Jesus himself is the model for fasting. After he's baptized and he's led by the Holy Spirit out into the desert, 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus fasted during that period in order to do battle with Satan, to do battle with temptation. And in doing so, he becomes for us the prime example, the principal example for fasting. And he tells his disciples that prayer and fasting together is powerful. And we see that in Mark. Let's see what page that's on. Page 75. His disciples went out. He sends them out. They go out. They come back, and they're unable to do something. He's, they're telling him, why could we not cast it out, meaning a demon? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Difficult situations in our life, brothers and sisters, require both. A lot of people, when they're in a rut, whether themselves or family members, will do a lot of praying. And that's good. But we forget to fast. We forget to fast. Because if it works for the Lord, if that's something that the Lord did, recognizing that some demons, and there are demons out there, they are things that we're dealing with and family members are dealing with addictions struggle medical issues then we're probably praying but are we fasting are we combining those two together that's successful that's powerful and jesus wants us to do this in secret he says on the sermon on the mountain when you fast do not look dismal like the hypocrites For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Fasting may be seen by men, not by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Our Lord addresses private fasting to his disciples, not the public fasting of the Jewish people as a whole. He still wants them to do communal fasting, but he's saying communal fasting can't be the only thing that you do. You have to do private fasting. He invites him to do that outside of special days like Yom Kippur, right? Developing the habit of secret fasting was to help them guard against doing the right thing, which is fasting, for the wrong reasons, seeking human pride, right? He wants us to fast for the sake of that and not for the sake of getting attention. Secret fasting also serves the purpose of drawing one closer to God who sees all that we do. This is called to be a regular part of our spiritual lives. So not just something we do on Ash Wednesday, not just something we do on Good Friday, and not something that we're we do during Lent. He wants it to be a regular part of our lives. He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. And not if you fast, things Jesus never said, if. He said when. He assumes that it's going to be regular. Which brings me to something, and I feel bad for you because once I say it, you can't not know it. So if you don't do it, then it's sinful. <laughs> Cover your ears. The church, following our Jewish roots, has always called us to fast in Friday on Fridays in Lent. That's the communal aspect. We do that as a community. Guess what? It's not just Lent. We're also called to do that on every Friday outside of Lent. We're called in Lent to abstain from meat. That's non-negotiable. That's a communal thing we do together, just like the Jews communally did that on the Day of Atonement. We do that on Ash Wednesday. We do that on Good Friday. We abstain from meat. But we also abstain from meat every Friday during Lent. That's the communal thing we do together. Because this relationship with Jesus is not just me, myself, and Jesus. It's me in the community and Jesus. So we do that in union with each other, okay? To be in solidarity with one another. But he also calls us to fast. If we abstain from meat, means we don't have it. Fasting is when we eat less of something. He calls us to do that, the church does, every Friday, even outside of Lent. And that's not Holy Mother Church saying, I want you to do all these things because I can force you to do it. No. Because she herself knows that Jesus wants us to do this regularly, that it's not optional. That for us to be holy, we have to make this part of our life. Now, the code of canon law says that if you can't abstain on Friday, then you can do another form of Penance, right? so that is something that we have to incorporate we've gotten away from sacrificing and abstaining and fasting we really have and we look at the fruits of that in the world because we don't because we're not in the practice of abstaining and fasting from good things in order to help us to stay away from the bad things look at so many people in the world and we don't have to point fingers. We can look at ourselves. of all the things that we replace. And we don't replace it with good things. We replace it with bad things. Pride, possession, pleasure. So if that's something that you struggle with, then take that call of Holy Mother Church serious. Take that, that call up and say, you know what? for myself or for someone else, because I can offer sacrifice for someone else as well. I'm not only going to pray, but I'm going to incorporate this into my life, at least weekly. I'm going to do something on Friday. I'm going to give something up on on Friday. Or we can use another minor day of fast. Traditionally has always been on Wednesday. The Wednesday if we can't do the Friday. Guess what? Holy Mother Church still teaches that we have to do that. We just failed to teach it from the pulpit. That's our fault. But now you know. Sorry. Fasting in the Christian tradition. Community fasting and Christian worship. We get a lot of questions. Why do we give up meat on Friday in Lent? Isn't that just a made-up rule? Well, if we look at Scripture... The early church did that. They did communal fasting. Liturgy, that's worship, and we know what worship and liturgy is now, right? I hope so. If not, go listen to the series. Liturgy and fasting were tied together, and they were practiced in the early days of the church as seen in the Acts of the Apostles, right? Chapter 13, verse 1 through 2 in Acts of the Apostles. In the church at Antioch, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. We do that every time we come to Mass. We worship the Lord, and an hour before, we fast. I know many of y'all remember growing up, y'all had Mass in the morning. Y'all would go to Mass early in the morning. I was like 14 years old when I finally understood what the word breakfast mean. Break fast. That's what breakfast is. Break fast because Mass was in the morning, and you didn't dare eat until Mass was over. That's when you would break fast breakfast. We over here have Mass in the afternoon, so we obviously have to eat something throughout the day. We can't go all day until 515. Just as the ancient Jews fasted in preparation for Passover, so the ancient Christians fasted before taking of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, in the lord's supper so the jewish people fasted before passover before they ate the sacrifice of the lamb we too fast before we eat the sacrifice of the lamb private fasting and the passion of jesus early christians engaged in private fasting on special days of the week such as wednesdays that's where it comes from it being a minor day of fast, and more so on Fridays, which were seen as a way of remembering the crucifixion, the day on which Jesus was taken away. That's why we pick Fridays, because Fridays, every day of the week, in the liturgical calendar, we celebrate as a mini day of something else. So every Sunday, we celebrate a mini what? Easter, resurrection. Every Friday, we celebrate as a mini... Good Friday, right. Holy Thursday, uh, Thursday is. That's why we do Eucharistic devotions on Thursdays. That's why we can do the, you know, um, First Friday is the Sacred Heart because it was the heart that was pierced for us, right? So this was ways in the early church of remembering the bigger events. So on Fridays, they remembered the crucifixion. In Mark's Gospel, we read, can the wedding guests... Fast while the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. On Good Friday, it was the day that our Lord was taken away from them. And so, because the bridegroom was not here, is not here, then our Lord calls us to do that fast. They didn't fast when he was there. Jesus told the people who were questioning the disciples of John the Baptist fasted. Why don't your disciples fast? because I'm with them. I'm no longer with them in that sense. He's present with us here sacramentally. but We are called to fast. The connection between fasting and the sufferings of Jesus became popular during the Middle Ages, which was seen not just as something to do in imitation of Christ, but also something to enter into union with Jesus. This is important, and I'm going to hash it out for you. It was not something just to imitate Christ. I'm gonna do it because Christ did it. That in itself is good enough. But the fasting was also done as something to enter into union with Jesus. The very word compassion, the Latin word compassion, compatio, means to suffer with. Our Lord invites us to some degree, some of us intense, some of us not so much, from the cross, he invites us to enter into his suffering, to have compassion, to suffer with him. That fasting is not only an imitation of him, but it's also in union with him. Thomas Campus writes in his famous spiritual writing, The Imitation of Christ, he says, Jesus finds many companions at table, but few in fasting. All desire to rejoice with Him, but few are willing to suffer something for Him and with Him. In this light, the person who fasts unites himself to Christ while he is alone in the desert, in Gethsemane, in the garden, on Calvary, suffering on the cross. We do this in a particular way during the Lenten season for 40 days, as a way of uniting ourselves to the mystery of Jesus in the desert. And before we, I'm gonna finish with this chapter. We have 10 minutes left, but I wanna tell you a personal story. And not to make you cry, that's not my intent. Please don't. Um, I don't know if you know, but in 2012, I lost my mom to cancer. When I was a sophomore in college, Uh, She had two years doing chemo. When she began to do her chemo, uh, she did three different types of chemo. The first one uh, didn't respond. Her body didn't respond to it. The second one was too aggressive. And the third one, I think, was working for a little while. The third one, though, as she took more of it, began to make her hair fall out, as you know. And mama loved her hair. (laughs) And as her hair was falling out, she always said, Undergoing and she said once it falls out. That's it. I'm getting rid of all of it And I remember, you know, we would we would find hair like all over the bathroom was just falling out So now as a guy that means different from us, right? We we don't care, you know, how much hair we have as long as we have some of it, right? But for a woman ladies, you know, that's different, right? That's very different from y'all almost a sacred thing and so I remember it was a big, big ordeal. My sister was invited over, you know, for this. They got the, the, uh, the clippers and boom, boom, they shaved her head. She had all the hats, she had all the little wigs she was gonna wear, you know, we were all prepping for it. And then in that moment, I had this idea. I said, you know what, I'm gonna do it too. So I allowed my sister to shave my head, just like mom, and it was buzz cut, all right? And I don't know why I did it at the moment, but looking back at it now, I understand that I wanted to not just imitate my mom. I didn't want her to feel alone in that, but I wanted to enter into, unite her suffering and the humiliation. That's the same thing with fasting for us as Christians. It's not just to imitate the Lord, but it's really to suffer with. It's to suffer with. I I think of that beautiful song by Rascal Flatts. I think it came out in 2005. Sarah Beth's skin. Remember the young girl? She's diagnosed with cancer. She too begins to lose her hair. And it's the very last stanza, I think it is, where she's worrying about what they're gonna think of her when she goes to the prom with no hair. And the doorbell rings. And she walks down the stairs and her date is there. And he removes his cap. And what did he do? He shaved his head too. And it says, softly she touches just skin. He desires to enter into, not just to imitate, but to unite himself with her so that she's not alone in that. That's the same thing the Lord wants us to do. There's nothing that we can tell him that's going to take away from that. But there is something he desires. There's a way that we can satiate to quench the thirst that he has. And again, remember, it's not for water. It's for your soul. He refuses the gall because he doesn't want to numb it. He wants to feel all the pain for you because he loves you. And that thirst for his soul is for you to be right there at the foot of the cross and you don't have to say anything. You don't even have to do anything. You have to be present to him. But that fasting is one way in which we can be present to the Lord, in which we can enter into. And we know that having seen the Passion or read the Scriptures or prayed with imaginative prayer, we understand as much as we can on this side of heaven the things that the Lord has gone through for us that what we do is just a small participation, but it doesn't have to be anything great. Because more than it just being a small participation, an imitation of Christ, it's an invitation to be united with him. So if we are struggling with the lust of the flesh, if that's something we're struggling with, desiring pleasure, then a remedy for that is fasting. And fasting, again, is not something that we're called to do occasionally. We're called to do it regularly. In a particular way, we need to start fasting from good things It's not enough to say that we will fast from sins and bad habits. I get that all the time. Oh, I'm going to give this up, Father. Well, you shouldn't be doing that anyway. That's a bad Lenten practice. Remember, we don't negotiate with the devil. We don't negotiate with sin. It's not enough to say that we will fast from sins and bad habits because, in principle, If we can't control our tongue's cravings for food and drink, good things that the Lord wants us to have, but in moderation, we'll never be able to control our cravings for gossip, obscenity, rudeness, insults. It's in our voluntary giving up of good things we develop a stronger will to voluntarily resist the bad things. The ability to control the body and the soul, remember, go hand in hand. There is tension there. There's friction. But the more we work at it, the more the body and soul is united. That's what it means to be holy. And when it comes to the practice of fasting, we need to ask God for the grace to grow in self-control. If we know that fasting is something we need to do, we don't just start doing it. Because what's going to happen, we're going to start off great and we're going to fall flat on our face. And then we're going to get discouraged and then we're going to want to walk away and say, oh, I tried, it didn't work. Resolve to do it, but ask for God's grace. He'll help you. If it's of his will, if it's holy, he'll give you the grace to be faithful to that. As Jesus says in the Gospel of St. John, apart from me, you can do nothing. For man, it's impossible. But with God, it's amen. We'll stop there tonight. About two or three minutes left. Any questions on what we might have covered tonight or the night before? We'll have time tomorrow night to do some questions. I think because the way it's going... I think we'll continue with this. We'll do almsgiving tomorrow night. We'll do prayer tomorrow night. Those are the other two chapters. I'll try to jump into vices and virtue. I don't know if we're gonna have time, but if this is something you like, maybe we continue this in the summertime or after Easter. All right, any questions? And again, thank you for your patience with the printing stuff. I'm gonna try and do that earlier tomorrow. Yeah, oh yeah, just bring yours back, yeah, <laughs> please. <laughs> All right, well, let's finish with the glory be. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. The Lord be with you. With May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good night, everyone.